Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me today are Spike's deputy editor and host of Last Orders, Tom Slater. Hello, hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. This week on the show, the Covington Catholic schoolboys, the brutality of Fortress Europe and the rise of woke comedy. The Covington Catholic High School students, some wearing Make America Great Again hats, were in D.C. last week for the March the for Catholic Life. The Catholic school teenager who was wearing that MAGA hat caught on viral video in a bizarre stare-down with a Native American elder. The story is still swirling on social media. Now the president sounding off defending those teens. What the school was sheltered upper-middle-class white boys who could devastate with a smirk, a facial gesture that weaponized their privilege. At the weekend, a video which appeared to show a group of students from Kentucky's Covington Catholic High School mocking an elderly Native American veteran went viral. A day later, further footage exonerated the boys, but by then they were caught in the midst of a vicious Twitter storm. Ella, can you tell us a bit more about this incident? Okay, yeah, so initially this video, short video, showed what seemed to be this kid from Covington, Nick Sanderman, in a MAGA hat, smiling at uh, this elderly Native American man in a way that looked extremely smarmy, extremely disrespectful. Uh, And it seemed like the boys at this school were mocking this man and were being extremely unpleasant. That video went viral uh, almost immediately. Um, People were tweeting about it, actresses, actors, politicians were and people from the media were tweeting about it saying that this was disgusting that these kids should be named and shamed or doxxed uh one tweeted a mock-up of them being fed into a chipper alafago style i mean really it was a vicious attack on these kids saying that they should be denounced and they were a symbol of all the racism and hatred in america uh, shortly afterwards, uh, it was revealed that this was just a short clip from a much longer bit of footage, a much longer event at which, in fact, these kids had been visiting the Lincoln Memorial uh, site. They had been waiting for their bus. They had been approached by a small group of protesters, black Hebrew Israelites, who had, in fact, abused them and had shouted uh, nasty stuff at them, had tried to engage them in a conflict, saying things like, you're president as a homosexual making some kind of really stupid comments at these kids who in turn didn't particularly react very well and then onto the scene came Nathan Phillips the Native American veteran who was banging a drum got up in the face of Nick Sanderman the kid whose face has now gone viral the smiling kid and an incredibly unpleasant altercation happened and really, if you're telling the truth about it, it, uh, it is the kids who were the victims of this situation, though some of them acted like kids, stupidly and perhaps disrespectfully. This was an unprecedented attack on a bunch of school kids who were doing nothing but waiting for a bus and has been interpreted uh, by many liberal commentators in America as something completely different, as a symbol of the racism. So it's, it's really quite a shocking situation, actually. So what do you make of this? I mean, the fact that they're, they're children. And this is definitely a new low for the kind of Twitter mobbing culture war, because as you point out, they're children. And not only, as Ella says, not only is it become quite clear as the longer videos have come out that what people instantly assumed about that initial standoff between this student from the Catholic high school wearing his MAGA cap um, and this Native American veteran indigenous rights activist was not all of it seemed. But even if you thought that maybe for a second that these kids were being close to as disrespectful as some people thought they were, that they were kind of chanting along with this Native American man in a way that was meant to be disrespectful, all of which I think the later released footage suggests that they actually weren't doing that. Even if you thought that, you know, 
people like Kathy Griffin, millions of followers on Twitter, calling for children to be named, shamed docs. There was this kind of almost a meme going around, which is about how these kids should never get into college and that um, you know anyone, anyone they apply to should be hounded to make sure that they don't accept their applications. At one point, a guy called Michael Hodge, who also goes to Covington, but I don't think was present at the... Um, at that incident and at the March for Life, was falsely named as the smiling kid. And his parents had people call up at their workplace, at their home, threatening them, etc. It was just this incredibly unhinged um, incident, which let's just let's remember isn't just the kind of work of like a handful of people on the internet with not much time on their hands. Very prominent people dived headlong into this. Ever since then, some of them have apologised. Some of them have um, kind of quietly deleted their tweets, but a lot of them haven't, actually. And I think it just goes to show how intent people are on maintaining a certain narrative about a deeply racist America in which even school children are, you know, abusing Native Americans in plain sight, um, that even when presented with the error of their ways, they're not even correcting it. So I think, yeah, this, this marks a bit of a new low, because not only were these kids not nearly as guilty as some first assumed they were, but even if they were being slightly more disrespectful, surely a proportionate response in any civilised, rational society is not to try and hound children for the sake of, you know, exercising all these demons. It was bizarre. And the, and the level of threats has been such that the school has had to close until police can declare it safe. Well, there was a really good tweet that someone put out, which said that Nick Sandman and the students of Covington have become symbols of fake news and how evil it can be. They have captivated the attention of the world, and I know they will use it for good, maybe even to bring people together. That was by Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't usually agree with Trump's <laughs> tweets, but he's right on the money there. I mean, the whole panic about fake news uh, usually comes from liberals, certainly in America, attacking Trump, sometimes quite rightly, for you know perpetuating things that aren't true, for pushing social media pylons. But in this case, let's not pretend that this whole fake news panic only goes one way. It's very clear now that it can be used as a tool from both sides, Republicans and Democrats, liberals and the supposed right wing in America, to screw with the truth and ruin people's lives in the process. Yeah, and and I think one of the most interesting and horrifying things about this spectacle is that many of the people who got it wrong, while a number of them, to their credit, have come out and apologised, you know, even some articles have been retracted, but a lot of people have simply just doubled down Mm. and, you know... Move the goalposts Move the goalposts to dig up further things about these school children. You know, there's various pictures of the sports team or saying that, you know, the school has a bad attitude to homosexuality. Mehdi Hassan, who now works for Al Jazeera, he basically did a thread saying he wouldn't apologise to the Covington boys about his comments because there are all these other examples of schoolboys doing yeah. racist things. You know, so in a sense that these boys just become a kind of catch-all symbol. The amount of people that have said this smile, you know, embodies white supremacy or embodies... Mm. Um, white patriarchy, in the words of one BuzzFeed writer, who also compared him to a future Brett Kavanaugh, yeah. implying that, you know... Ten-year challenge was one thing. Ten-year <laughs> challenge, yeah, exactly. Implying that he would, you know, basically is a future rapist because of the, this little smirk. The inability for people to even just walk back and own up to their mistake yeah. is really, really shocking. And it's just a perfect example as well about why, you know, it's like an age-old lesson about prejudging people. Mm. Because again, if you look at that kind of still image or the clip of Nick Salmon's face kind of grinning, you do think think you know smug entitled private schoolboy, but then again you look at the whole clip and he's obviously smiling awkwardly he yeah. doesn't really know what's going on no one really knows what's going on it started off with this confrontation between them and these kind of black nationalists then this native american guy decides to get in the middle because he thinks he's 
housing situation. <laughs> that, you know, there's even further clips where, you know, other members of um, the indigenous rights kind of activist group start arguing with some of the kids in the MAGA cap. And you see Nick Salmon turn around and try and tell them to knock it off because it's escalating the situation. And it's just quite interesting that, again, just instantly the narrative got ahead of the facts. And when there's so much liberal hand-wringing still in America about fake news, about people getting whipped up, about QAnon or any kind of other nonsense that's mm. floating around the kind of Trumpist Twitter sphere, that something like this could not only, you know, capture everyone in this kind of mob-like mentality, but that even when they're presented with the facts, they refuse, as you say, to kind of own up to what it is that they did. And as ever, the, the sort of raging dumpster fire of the Twitter storm continues because now there are some people on the right who are trying to dig up Nathan Phillips' mm. past. You know, it's very ugly. It's incredibly ugly, saying that perhaps his claim to be a veteran isn't true, mm. look at, you know, looking into that. The inspiring thing about Nick Sandman was he put out a quite lengthy statement which if you read it says that he's even thanks Nathan Phillips for serving his country I mean he says he doesn't he wouldn't dare to um, presume why he was there protesting he says that he supports freedom of speech and he supports even the the black Hebrew Israelites who got up in their faces he supports their right to freedom of speech it's a a really great statement from a kid Mm -hmm. to say that actually he doesn't hold any of this to heart he talks about the fact that he's a Christian all of that even that, some people are slating him on Twitter and saying, "Oh well, he got um, he got his statement read by officials." I mean, a behalf, um, yeah, they've yeah. Been of crazy course he did. He's a kid. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's just this caught ridiculous... in the middle of a huge Twitter yeah, storm. Yeah, you're going to be careful. He but... can't win. These kids yeah. can't win. I think that's the really disgusting part of it. That there is nothing they could do, even if they came out and profusely apologised for things that they didn't need to apologise for. You just know that this wouldn't go away. Mm. And I think it's, it's fair to say that these kids handled it actually pretty incredibly well. I mean, the thing about Nathan Phillips is, I think. It's, it's, could well be the case that he just incredibly misunderstood what happened. Mm. But nevertheless, in terms of the quotes that he gave to the Detroit Free Press and a few other places, or a few other places that reprinted those, he basically asserted the fact that these children were beasts and that the, <laughs> black, the black Hebrew nationalists were their prey and he went in there to kind of diffuse their racism. So at the same time, they've had a lot flung at them and yet they've come out of this, I think, actually with their heads held high, which is pretty interesting. I think one important thing to note and to reflect on is how just strange it is that a pretty odd confrontation on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial has dominated the news agenda in the US and a little bit elsewhere of course for days and days and days and I think it does speak to the state of the US culture war that again the kind of people taking sides on behalf of these Catholic school boys or this Native American activists or whatever has become such a kind of huge story that said I think some of the responses from some of the more kind of chin stroking columnists kind of saying well this is like one of those culture war raw shock tests you know you just see into it what you want to see into it and the message of this is that we're just very polarized I think is still a bit short of the mark because at the end of the day these kids were woefully misrepresented and you don't need as none of us are flag waving trump supporters Mm. to to be on their side because they were treated badly in this whole situation i'd just like to take a really quick moment to say a massive thank you to everyone who's been donating to spiked I know many of you who listen to this podcast have donated to us in the past or make monthly donations, and it's thanks to your contributions and generosity that we can keep going and growing. Spike to some very exciting plans for the year ahead with our podcasts, and we need the help of listeners and readers like you to make them happen. So if you haven't before, please do consider making a donation, or even better, setting up a monthly donation. It's really easy to do. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. Thank you. Now, back to the show.
A new report from Human Rights Watch paints a damning picture of the EU's external migration policy. Since the migrant crisis, the EU has been paying states and militias in North Africa to round up and detain migrants on their way to Europe. Then they're often held in degrading conditions, sometimes indefinitely. Tom, should we be surprised by the EU's brutal treatment of migrants? No, not at all. I think anyone who's been paying attention will know that these kinds of grubby deals that Human Rights Watch and this new report are drawing attention to have been going on for years and years and years. I mean, this particular report focuses on Libya and the funding, particularly of the Libyan Coast Guard, to effectively enforce Europe's external border from North Africa to pick up migrants who try and make the crossing and then to basically lock them up in these detention camps. Um, And considering the fact that Libya is, is... entirely destabilised at this point mm. and even the government that is in receipt of these funds um, is only really existing on the basis of you know some loyalties from various different militias you can just think about the kind of conditions that these migrants are being kept in but again there are um, there have been agreements with various other countries Egypt, Niger, Chad, Eritrea even have been given millions of euros in order to stop people getting to even getting close to the Mediterranean. Mm. And not only that, but the EU are intimately aware of the kind of conditions that these migrants are in in these camps. In November 2017, and this is something the report highlights, the EU Migration Commissioner Dmitry Avramopoulos even admitted that we, quote, we are all conscious of the appalling and degrading conditions in which some migrants are held in Libya. Yet when Human Rights Watch go to see these camps a year later, nothing has been done about this. And it's just, um, it's an open secret, really, mm. amongst anyone who um, cares to look at it. And I think what it really gives the lie to, especially amongst the, a lot of the discussion about Brexit and the European Union, etc., is that f- we really, we, even though we've been saying this for years, we really need to shatter this idea that the European Union is this kind of haven of freedom of movement and of migrants' rights. Because whilst, yes, it allows free movement within it, given its policies, given the brutal way in which it executes them, given the way it outsources its border control, basically, to dictators and militias in some of the most complicated countries in the world, um, it cannot try to claim the moral high ground on, on the issue of migration and free movement. These camps, I think, just serve as a shocking reminder of that. Yeah, and I, th- I think the Libya example is really pertinent, I think, because you know it's essentially created a kidnapping industry there's at least 20,000 migrants held in Libya alone and if you read some of the Amnesty International reports it talks about people being starved and beaten basically the only crime they're committing is that they look as if they might be going towards Europe I mean, the other thing is that, you know, even in, just in the case of Libya, this is not something that has just gone on post-refugee crisis in which an EU struggling to understand what to do kind of resorts to some pretty harsh measures. I mean, way back in 2010, the EU met with Gaddafi and agreed to give him, give him 50 million euros over three years in order to again be their border guard. He even said explicitly that in his word, what they were trying to do was prevent a, quote, black Europe. So they, uh, yeah. not only the grubbiness of these deals, but again, the kind of racist undertones of these kinds of fortress Europe policies have been clear for anyone to see as long as you're paying attention for years. This is not a new phenomenon and how it doesn't chip the moral authority of the EU in some people's eyes still just is remarkable, I think. Yeah, I mean, at the height of the Syrian refugee crisis a number of years ago, I remember watching countless documentaries, newsreels of commentators, celebrities like Lily Allen going to camps and crying and saying mm. that this was terrible injustice to human rights and uh, you know, quite rightly how this situation should be righted. These are the same people who are now, you know, painting their faces blue and yellow yeah. and going on about how great the EU is. But in relation to immigration, you can make a very clear argument that says that the EU has policies in place that Thomas Justita 
world, which means that black people don't get into Fortress Europe. Mm. I mean, it's as simple as that. And it has been as simple and as clear as that for decades now. I mean, the, I can't actually believe why this hasn't become more of a story. And I think it, it partly is because this is something that's not just EU policy, but also has been British government policy for a very long time. So if you think back to both on, you know, in relation to the recent hostile environment scandal with the Windrush citizens uh, that Theresa May was at fault for and the kind of the terrible situation at the moment in which you have a government that's just flailing around to form some kind of immigration policy that doesn't reflect what people want uh, and is really quite restrictive and punitive. But even the Labour Party, I mean, rewind back to 2007 and Gordon Brown's British Jobs for British Workers comments. I mean, a hostility to immigration has been at the heart of government policy for a long time. People who are pro-EU, especially politicians who are pro-EU, can play this terrible double standards in morality, while at the one hand bemoaning Syrian refugees or uh, migrants dying in the sea and saying that something must be done in capitals about this. On the other hand, supporting an institution which is you know, to not put too strong a point on it, in cahoots with the murder and abuse of, of at this point, thousands of black people. I, th- I think that's absolutely right. The only difference in terms of, you know, my migration policy between the European Union and, say, Viktor Orban is one of rhetoric. Europe, the European Union has become increasingly restrictive to the outside world. You know, we've seen we've seen over the last several decades over 20,000 people die in the Mediterranean. And now less people are making the crossing as the refugee crisis has wound down. But actually, a larger proportion mm. of people who are making the crossing are drowning. And we re- we remember back in 2013, the Lampedusa yeah. uh, tragedy where 300 people drowned. And, you know, many of the fishermen who were near the boat stood by. Why did they stand by? Not because they were inhumane. But because for years and years, whenever people had saved migrants from the shores, whenever ordinary citizens had done their bit mm. to help these people, they were then charged with crimes in, in Europe. Aiding illegal immigration. Aid, aiding yeah. illegal immigration. And this was before Salvini ever turned up on the scene. Mm. This, was the, this was around the time when we had supposedly nice, liberal, progressive leaders in, in Europe. So I think that there is a real double standard in relation to immigration. There are obviously people have concerns about this and anyone who voices a concern about immigration is denounced as a racist. But anyone who is actually in charge of the machinations that leads to the deaths and imprisonment of tens of thousands of people is seen as a good person. Mm. And it's also, I think it just goes to show as well how we really need to kind of demystify the kind of migration issue because the one thing that the European Union and European member states have been doing over the last five, ten years is that they've on the one hand been very duplicitous about how they manage immigration but on the other hand being almost incredibly indecisive. You get this Mm. incredibly mixed signals. You know, you have Angela Merkel throwing open the borders to Syrian refugees then closing them very abruptly and with the EU striking this deal with Turkey whereby, um, again, migrants are basically shipped across the sea to Turkey, not only creating a situation where you have loads of people in migrant camps in Erdogan's Turkey, but also um, incredibly degrading conditions developing on Lesbos and the Mariah camp. And again, this kind of combination of um, effectively enforcing a certain migration policy on most of Europe against, in the case of Hungary or in the case of Italy or in the case of other places, what what these individual member states and their voters actually want. But at the same time, dealing with the issues that they themselves have created in such a cack-handed and brutal fashion, it only ratchets up tensions, you know, on Mm. Lesbos in the Mariah camp, the fact that the conditions have got worse and worse, the fact that the um, ability of migrants to actually have some sort of pathway 
to actually get into Europe or even just to settle their status in some sort of meaningful way have been locked off. The more naturally people are trying to escape the camp, the more criminality you get, mm. the more hostility you get from people on the island. It's, no, it's a no-brainer that these things happen. I think whilst obviously it's the case that there are people across Europe and in Britain as well who have concerns about immigration, who want democratic control to be brought back under it, I think that kind of combination of incompetence, brutality and duplicitousness that is embodied in EU migration policy has only been making the matter worse. The more that you can have an open, honest conversation with people about this, um, without rather than just saying one thing and doing another, the more you've got a chance of having a more humane migration policy, which crucially has the support of voters. I think what we've seen is that no one's benefiting from the current system. Hi there. I hope you're enjoying the Spike podcast so far. And if you are, why not help us spread the word by giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider? It won't take long, but it will make a huge difference for us. So we'd be massively grateful if you could take a tiny bit of your time to give us a rating and a review. Right, now back to the show. Last year, the director of the Edinburgh Comedy Awards promised to champion woke comedy. She likened the new generations of inclusive comedians to the alternative comedians of the 1980s. So what do we make of this trend for woke comedy? Um, I think it's very strange and it's something which has really just sort of like dominated the comedy discussion really for a long time and not just because there's this new generation of like incredibly PC kind of young comedians who want to you know just constantly make jokes about the Daily Mail or about why having several gender identities is no big deal that's fine that's not they can do that they can have their audience that's not a big problem I think where things have become difficult is that there's this attempt to effectively kind of police the comedians of a slightly older era um, to deem what they're doing is incredibly suspect, prejudiced, etc. And we've seen a couple of flashpoints with that recently. The whole kind of Louis C.K. situation, of course, he was shamed in a, in a Me Too scandal last year. Makes It's starting to make a bit of a comeback. There's a, a set of him performing in New York City, which is leaks, in which he's making jokes at the expense of younger people, of um, people who are non-binary, suggesting they're like kind of <laughs> monarchs who demand that you address them how they wish to be addressed. Um, and also making jokes about the um, Parkland kids. Now, if you if you've paid any attention to Louis C.K.'s career, you'll know that this, if anything, is probably on the lighter end of some of his material. But nevertheless, this kind of response to it to say that he's trying to mount a comeback by becoming some kind of alt right edge lord and all this kind of stuff, it just feels like in a very short space of time, the boundaries for what is acceptable, those boundaries have moved completely. And it's not necessarily the case that. The problem is that all of these young woke comics have come through. It's that a lot of them have come through and decided that what came before them is wrong and must be kind of stamped out at all costs. Yeah, I, th- I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, I've got to admit, I do find a lot of the, you know, woke comedy incredibly unfunny. I mean, if you watch Today's Daily Show or John Oliver yeah. or in the UK, The Mash Report, there is this tendency now to replace jokes with, you know, basically liberal talking points. So you'll see people cheer rather than laugh at things. Or the other, you know, the other key example of this might be Hannah Gadsby and her Netflix special Nanette, where she openly says, I want to quit comedy and just makes you miserable for about an hour with a, with a couple of jokes <laughs> thrown in in there. So, I mean, I don't like that, but that's fine if people if people like it. But yeah, as you say, Tom, the flip side is, Anything that's not that is getting pushed out increasingly. You know, you have um, BBC producers saying that we wouldn't commission Monty Python nowadays. I mean, they 
said that because they wouldn't commission five Oxbridge blokes. But I bet they would commission five Oxbridge blokes if they were making the woke kind of, mm. you know, politically correct jokes that they seem to that they seem to love. I think also it's gone out the window, the idea and the fact that comedy is incredibly personal. So your reaction to comedy is incredible is completely subjective. I only find a very small amount of people funny and no prizes for guessing that it's only Irish comics that I find funny. <laughs> but Irish theme. identity. That's rubbish. it. I, I Ella's Irish identity politics is a recurring theme. I can't, I can't help it. That is just <laughs> the way it is. I laugh at Dylan Moore and I don't laugh at Stuart Lee. Well, not Dylan's new show, surely. Well, yeah, no, his Brexit jokes are definitely beyond the pale. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I mean, I was shocked recently to find out about that hear that story about Constantin Kissin mm. um, a comic who also runs the podcast Trigonometry who pulled out of a gig at SOAS in the university in London quite rightly because they asked him to sign a behavioral agreement form which essentially would be signing away his ability to be funny push the boundaries make people laugh comedy has now been so deeply politicized in a way that no one can really get away from it so your routine will be scrutinized by politicians, by commentators, for the kind of moral standards of it, for the way in which it, uh, the responsibility that it's meant to have, rather than just entertainment. Just coming back to that behavioural agreement form, the most striking thing for me on it wasn't that it said you can't, you can't be racist or homophobic or, or any of these things. It was that it said that all comedy should be respectful. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's what Constant Kissing took actually the most um, umbrage at and... and, and and quite rightly so. I mean, it undermines the entire basis of satire and comedy if we have to be respectful to each other. And and my worry is that this, you know, when this gets played out on a larger scale, in the end, we're going to have to be respectful to supposedly the people in power, to rich people, to celebrities. I mean, if yeah. you look at the recent um, Golden Globes, it was it was hosted by two relatively bland people who jokingly said we're going to be just like Ricky Gervais and slag everyone off and then they didn't they were all very kind to the yeah. celebrities you know political correctness is supposed to be about not punching down but in it's the increasingly end, about not increasingly punching at all yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> which is really quite weird it's also interesting how, how a how long this has been going on for in terms of how long comedians have been making uh, you know rude and uh, over the line jokes but also how long this kind of culture of complaint has been building i remember back in 2009 when frankie boyle the controversial scottish comedian made a joke on mock the week about the queen's vagina being haunted (laughs) (laughs) which was which was really funny at the time he didn't use the word vagina he used another word it was funny Uh, and there were complaints leveled against him and against the bbc that he was being sexist and ageist i mean obviously he it was a joke about the the queen's sex and age the funniest thing was when they made uh, emily maitlis read it out on newslight yeah But that, so in 2009, the BBC shrugged it off. The, the BBC Trust said, no, we're not going to take this down. We're not going to write it off the history. It was just a joke. Yeah. Now that would never happen. I mean, it, A, it would never even have been allowed to have been aired, never mind going and apologising after it. So, the, you know, we haven't changed. The public hasn't changed. We still find these things funny, most of us, because you can disassociate reality from the entertainment value of a joke. What has changed is uh, the people in power who are making decisions for what we can and can't laugh at. You've been listening to the Spike Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to give us a rating, a review, or even make a donation. 
We'll be back next week. But for more Spike content every day, visit spiked-online.com.